0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: Yay! I still want to go into the um,
0: Muppet theme song, but I don't know the Muppet
1: theme song, so
0: people it's have been time saying to that. It's music. It's time to... Specialize. I know. It's time to get things started on the Muppet show. Anyway, forget that. Yeah. Are you kids Muppet fans? Not really. I mean, actually, that's... Not the way I guess we were. I mean, it was almost an adult show when I saw it, you know. Oh, the actual show, the half-hour show when they would have guests like Linda Statler. Yeah, yeah yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but like they saw that you know, the recent movie and they've seen the Muppet Christmas movie and stuff, so they're mm-hmm. aware of them. I don't know if they're huge Muppet fans, but they're aware of them. But I mean, if you tell
1: them that, that that we aspire to be the Stadler and the Waldorf of of the science fiction world, does that mean anything to them? Not a darn thing. Oh, no, too
0: bad. But then the science fiction world barely means a thing to them. So, you know, the fact that we're the world Earth and Statler or the, you know, sort of steak and cheese well, of science fiction really doesn't make much difference. I suppose you're right. I suppose.
1: Oh, well. How have you, I, I should apologize. It was my fault we did not get a podcast out last week. I was <laughs> out of town at a friend's birthday party and we drank too much too late and I didn't get back in contact with you. That's
0: okay. I mean, uh, whilst we uh, try to be serious about the podcast and focus on it and everything else, it's also an informal thing. So no one's going to actually hunt you you down and kill you for not having, you know, recorded an episode for a week, I think. They might very
1: well hunt us down and kill us for having recorded an episode.
0: (laughs) Well, we're actually just talking about, now now that you're uh, here... uh, that maybe what we want to do is to just quietly discuss the upcoming schedule for the Coot Street Podcast, because we've got some potential interruptions in, and opportunities in coming months. Mm-hmm. I mean, first up, next week, um, I will be away. I'm off to see Bruce Springsteen. So we may mm-hmm. or may not get get to record a podcast there. We'll see. depends on the hotel Wi-Fi and timing and all that. And... The weekend after that, you're off to Florida for the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts mm-hmm. where you will get to have fun, alcohol, and all I seem to know about it is the sound of crickets in the background. everybody sounding really, really drunk when you try and podcast with them. Well, um, those weren't crickets in the background, weren't they? no those, those, those were
1: those were uh, academics. <laughs> Of which I am one, so I can make jokes like that. But nevertheless, it's it, it, it'll be a nice conference. It's a small conference. It'll be the smallest conference that Neil Gaiman goes to this year. And Kidge, he and Kids Johnson are the two guests and our usual crew of friends and uh, and, 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 and family. And uh, uh, So, so we'll, we'll try to get some people together to do a podcast from there. Okay. Uh, but none of this is guaranteed because it all depends as we discovered um, – Every time we've been together at a convention of of literally sometimes abducting people up to the room. Yes.
0: And saying you're going to do a podcast now. It usually works out well, but you can't count on it. So basically what we're saying to you is if you're going to ICFA and you're interesting, sort of make yourself available and everybody else carry on. Um, That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If We
1: we, we have never done – every time we've done a podcast from there. And we had a very nice one. I think last year was the one where we had – uh, Ellen Clages and Andy Duncan. and I think Nalo came in,
0: yep, uh, at so some it. point.
1: Um, and it was it was it was in a room, and those people had been you know given the room number. Uh, we could actually try to record one out by the pool where everybody is having um, you know um, mango daiquiris.
0: Dude, it'll be your your laptop, but sure.
1: <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's true too. But anyway, we have that coming up. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. i'm I'm feeling this time of year, I begin to feel. A little bit of dread that the conference season begins. Okay. Because for me, it always begins in March. And a little bit of relief because there's a point at which uh, you begin to feel out of contact. Uh, like, there's a lot of work to do, obviously. I'm yeah. doing a lot of stuff at the university. But but there's a sense that I haven't seen anybody um, uh, or any large groups of people uh, since October. You're not feeling agoraphobic, are you, Gary? Um... Not quite that, no. It's, it, 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 it's simply a sense that there is a rhythm to the year, and we've talked about the sort Too of conference times, season. Too many times, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but, but there's also this dead part of the year, uh, and, and I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings who's, uh, who's who's got books coming out right now, but there's a period where the publishing schedule slows down for a couple of months. It's a little bit like the movie release schedule. Yeah. Uh, you can see really good movies that get released in January and February and early March because the studio thinks they're not commercially viable. Yeah. And that sometimes is, is a good movie. The same thing's true with books. Yeah. I think, see, it seems to me the schedule slows down, but there's still some very interesting books.
0: Yes. Yes. There are indeed many interesting books and it should be good. And uh, I, I see that kids Johnson is going to be there. Who knows? We might chat with her again. She's mm-hmm. almost a regular. She's always interesting, but that, that would be good. And then, um, Next month, as, as a foreshadowing, I will be in Canberra for the National Science Fiction Convention mm-hmm. for five days, five long days, because all days in Canberra are slightly longer than they are anywhere else in the world, and um, all sorts of fun people will be there. Nalo Hopkinson will be the guest of honour, and the entire Australian science fiction community is coming up to sort of hang out and say hi, mm-hmm. So, um, or most of it, those, those, those who can. So we could do all kinds of fun things there. Maybe catch up on the Oz SF scene. Uh, that would be a good idea as well, because you can. Nope. Yeah, no, that would be good.
1: I think so. Well, Nalo is always... Fun. One of the things that's interesting about Nalo, and it's uh, because we were noticing... Uh, we've talked about this before, the internationality of science fiction. One yeah. of the panels I'm chairing now um, at... Uh, at icfa has to deal with international science fiction but it's it's international not just in the sense that we have writers from around the world but it seems like they're all going to australia sooner or later karen lord our friend who's been on the podcast is was back? in adelaide uh, she's she's back yes. here now uh nalo has been in and out uh, it, it seems neil was china and, and neil have been there uh, recently yes uh part of the international nature of science fiction is that you can't find out where anybody is at any given moment you're not going to suggest we start tagging them, are you? I think we should. I think we should chip all the major science fiction writers uh, and just GPS them. And then we could and have some, an app. Probably, there could be an app. Some, some. Yeah, there should be an app. Absolutely, there should be an app. Where's, where's Neil? Where's China? Where's Nalo? Where's Karen? Where's?
0: Um, I can say that at least in Neil's defence, he does work very hard to tell you pretty much where he's going to be. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know like in fact uh, Florida I think.
1: Well it seems that this has to do with the highly connected nature of the science fiction world now. Uh, Not too many years ago uh, writers would be delighted to be invited to anywhere in Australia for a convention Mm -hmm. and nobody would know but now there are a substantial number of writers I don't know whether it's more than in the past who have uh, media followings, not the size of, of, of Neil or China, possibly, but but who really do have fans will make a considerable effort to get there. And one of the ways you can test the degree of your adherence and loyalty to an author is how far would you travel <laughs> if you knew that person. If you knew that, let's say, Karen Lord was going to be in, where was it, Adelaide? Adelaide. How, I don't even know where Adelaide is.
0: It's about halfway across Australia between uh, Perth and Sydney. Maybe okay, a, good example. A bit more, yeah. And honestly, yeah, actually, we- if if, it, if the circumstances were different, I would happily have gone to Adelaide to see Karen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm hoping that Karen – hello, Karen, if you're listening. I don't know if you still do, but if you do, uh, maybe in Brighton we'll get to see each other. Yes. Speaking-
1: and at some point before that, we, we, should, we should plug Karen's Best of All Possible Worlds because, Karen, if you want to come on, we'll talk about it with you.
0: Yes. Oh, actually, what I was going to say was, speaking of conventions and everything else – uh, today is an important day for Lone Star Con, this year's World Science Fiction Convention. Because it's the closing
1: day of the Hugo nomination process. Yes. And, and I- I, 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 just as a parenthesis, I did what you told me to do two weeks ago, which was to go in and make a nomination for the Budrus collection good man I,
0: I did that as well I also wanted to make it clear that you know I don't want anybody who's hearing this probably after nominations closed to sort of feel pressured or anything else but you will break our hearts if we don't make the Hugo ballot this year won't they Gary break our hearts yeah I don't think I, yeah, I don't think people should feel uh, pressured at all now that the deadline
1: is actually over before anybody hears this the deadline will be over probably now they should I feel could probably terribly rush regretful out. they should they should feel yeah nobody's going to hear this until it's too late our descent into alcoholism will start now um i'm ahead of you there pal <laughs> 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 i got my glass of wine
0: uh, i guess that was that was the shilling for the to hugo over then ah well i guess the, the real problem there is i mean actually i don't think i can no no i, I can't go can you are you going to go to Lone stockholm i'm going to wait and see what the hugo ballot looks like.
1: <laughs> i have told karen burnham that karen burnham is running the academic program and she yeah. would love to have me do things and i there are things I can do, I'm sure. Uh, I got a couple of emails at, at inviting me to join the programming, yep. um, and I just haven't decided yet.
0: Okay. Well, I guess that's uh, fair enough. I mean, you know. I, I, I think if, if things were different, you know, like if I won the lottery, would I go to Lone StarCon? Absolutely, I'd go to Lone StarCon. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's going to be a terrific convention. Ellen Detler's is a guest of honor. And there'll be all sorts of fabulous people there, and it 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 is a truism that you know the science fiction community is different from uh, the fantasy community slightly. Those who attend the conventions, so it's a great chance to see a different group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely 100% going to Lone Star Con, barring strange disaster, which is oh sorry, not Lone Lone, Lone, Star, Luncon, no Luncon. London 2014, country, Which yeah. is the 2014 World Science Fiction Convention, which will be in London, where you and I have to catch up on every single English person ever born who's not been on the podcast and get them on the podcast. Well, we can get some of them in Brighton, possibly. Yes, I know. But we'll have to, like, we'll get them. And the, but they'll be the fantasy ones. So we we'll get all of the science fiction ones. That's true. We'll get all
1: of the science fiction ones. We'll finally nail down those people who have promised to be on the podcast and then suddenly had a lapse of memory.
0: Yes, and basically as well, I have to, I, mean, I will express my one disappointment about Brighton. Two, um, but, but one main one. At least is not going to be there at Brighton, which is disappointing. But the oh. other one, yeah, I know. But the, uh, yeah, it is. It's unfortunate, but that's how it happens, I guess. And also, I heard that KJ Parker won't be there, and I was really looking forward to meeting KJ Parker. Oh, that would have been very interesting. Mm. But you know, who just sent me a new story? So yay! Excellent. I just have to work out where I'm going to publish it, but it's good. Now, we're rabbiting, we're waffling. Waffling and rabbiting are fine. You mentioned we might touch on this. H- things have been happening in the science fiction world whilst we have been in the depths of despair, Gary. Or, I mean, or our drinks or whatever we were. Well, what is, what's been happening that's, uh, that's
1: that's worthy of note?
0: Oh, I don't know, Gary. Let me think. <laughs> 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 no, who, who says we <laughs> don't prepare? Uh, they did present the Tiptree Award this last week. Oh, uh, to- they announced the Tiptree Award this last week. Oh, sorry, they will
1: present it. the Tiptree Award at the end of May at Wisconsin
0: Yes, okay, fair enough. Julie noted and corrected. And I just take hat off to them. They did a fabulous job this year. Obviously, they listened to the podcast I did with Writer and the Critic, where, you know, I know you've listened to that. Uh, yes. Of course. Where I did suggest that I would have been curious as to the point of having a Tiptree Award if The Drowning Girl wasn't on their honor list. And of course, it is one of the co-winners this year. Yes, which is a fantastic um, thing. It's 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 a very
1: healthy thing. It's a, I was one of the judges this year. That's, uh, so
0: who, that's who were oh god I forgot I was going to say who who, who, were, who were the judges this year? There was you and whom Gary? Well, Joan Gordon
1: was the um, oh gee I would have to look up Cheer. Joan
0: Gordon was the chair,
1: uh, Andrea Harrison, yeah, um, Leslie Hall, um, oh. Karen Lord. Karen Lord. I'm missing somebody's name. I know that. Gary uh, K Wolf. I'm looking at the list now. I found the list. Oh, okay. You found the list. Okay. So you're only missing uh, you. I think there is a miss. I think there's a there's a name missing from the uh,
0: list. well, the list is. But it, G- Gordon Harrison, Hall, Lord, and Wolf. So. If we're missing okay, somebody. Maybe was, maybe Tansy, maybe was Tansy? Was Tansy the other one? Who? Was Tansy Roberts the other one?
1: No. Um, she was not but the thing is when when you're on the board you get a lot of you get a lot of emails from administrators and we had a lot of communication for example karen joy fowler who uh is one of the people that oversees this and debbie notkin who oversees it so i I, there were times when i was thinking okay no women karen's karen joy fowler is not a judge but she's really kind of the godmother of the award process as i can see now and i will say one of the things it, it was a delightful group of people to be with and this is I can say this now that I plan never to be a judge for anything again. Until next time. Yeah? I, I, I No. I, the, the, the judges for Tiptree have been announced for next year. I've told the uh, Shirley Jackson people I'm not doing anymore. World fantasy, I don't think you ever get asked twice. Um, so, uh, but, but this is odd. This is an unusual award in that every Tiptree jury more or less gets to decide what the parameters of the award are.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, you can't really compare one year to the next because it's not a. Um, the, well, the other award which I administer is, is the Crawford Award. Is very Crawford Award is very clear. It has to be a first book. It has to be a fantasy. Um, yeah. That's about it. But that limits you. This has a general purview of something to do with altering our perceptions and understanding of gender. But every committee can redefine that in its own way. Yeah. So yeah, we did have discussions. Uh, the discussions about uh, the drowning girl began late, but it's the drowning girl is simply one of those books which most people, upon encountering it, uh, are surprised. And the reaction, without without naming anybody, the reaction of a couple of other judges was interesting, which is that I wouldn't have looked at this because I've thought of Caitlin Karyn as a horror writer and I don't read horror.
0: Oh, if Caitlin's hearing this, she just gnashed her teeth. Poor woman. She did, but I think that she's – people who haven't read her in years are
1: going to think that. Uh, a, a lot of people out there have not read The Red Tree. A lot of the people have not read the short fiction she's been writing in the last ten years.
0: Yeah, well, I guess what I would hope, right, mm-hmm. is that um, against all odds, um, this is the year where Caitlin Kiernan's reputation is changing. And what well, I, I think it is,
1: is I, I, I well, I really think, uh, because going back a couple of years when I was on the World Fantasy Award, we were looking at The Red Tree. Yeah. Um, that is the red. And, and, and there were a number of people back then, including myself, who thought this is a lot better than any other novel length work I've seen of hers. Yeah. And in my view, The Drowning Girl is many, several steps beyond what The Red Tree was able to accomplish. And that's not saying that The Red Tree wasn't a very impressive novel. It was. Um, so I, it think she, I think she has broken out. I, I think that's possibly very true. Okay.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was oh. awfully, I mean, I, as, as everybody knows, sort of, I was very, very impressed by the novel. Um, mm-hmm. And think that th- it, winning the Tip Tree and being nominated for the Nebula hopefully are the things that will push Caitlin's reputation in a broader direction and uh, have her seen as the more interesting challenging broader writer that she is i think that's
1: almost inevitable and i i, I think that the thing that impresses me about uh, the way caitlin is handling this and when she was on the podcast she was wondering if she could ever write anything this good again of course she can but she's also capable of having a lot of fun with blood oranges mm-hmm. of just sort of sending up the you know everything. Uh, everything from from Buffy to Twilight, the whole urban romance genre. So she's uh, she's certainly not in danger of taking herself too seriously at this point. We should mention the other winner, which, which was I was going to, yes. Yeah. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but I think it's Kini Ibura Salam, uh, a collection of stories called Ancient Ancient, which was published by Aqueduct, and are really uh, it's a really a very. Um, um, it's a varied collection of story there's there's there there is science fiction in it there's mythological fiction there's um some um folkloristic um mythical kind of things there's some of it's a little bit experimental and modernistic in style but well, i think what impressed all of us about it was there's a just a lot of variety of stuff and and all of it has to deal with some um well not all of it but a good deal of it has to has something to do with the issues of gender that um, that are supposedly the purview of the Tiptree Award. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, one of the novel—I'm not giving away too much by way of uh, what what judges said, but um, Karen Tidbeck's Jagannath was also mm. very seriously considered. And one of the questions that comes up and turns out, if you want to give the Tiptree Award to a short story or a novella, you certainly have a right to do that. Um
0: John Kessel won it for Stories for Men, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, it's certainly a very and interesting look, and a varied long list that you came up with or on a list. You know, Range of Ghosts by Elizabeth Bear, Rituals by Roz Caveney, Up mm-hmm. Against It by M.J. Locke, 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Firebrand by Ankarat Wells, which I confess I've not heard of, and The Receptionist by Leslie Wheeler. It's quite, quite a list. You must have felt there was a very strong year for gender in the, in the field
1: um I don't know that that's a very strange thing to say what what is a strong year for gender I don't,
0: no it's <laughs> like a really good honor list Gary so I thought I'd say something really solid and go cool well, yeah, yeah uh,
1: essentially I, I I think I think what the honor <laughs> list shows is that there is a wide range of kinds of fiction that can deal with gender in different ways I mean so, without some of the some of the titles on the list I thought were um They dealt with gender in the sense that they dealt with uh, heroic women protagonists who fought against the system, which is is one way of looking at it. Um, Some of them uh, were very deliberate, conscious, hard SF attempts to deal with the issue of gender. Mm -hmm. That was mainly Stan Robinson's 2312, where he lists, one chapter is like listing 15 different you know, gender and body combinations you can have, and the characters have, have both been different sexes at different times. Um, it's interesting that gender seems to be a more difficult issue to deal with in science fiction than in fantasy. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: or at least in hard science fiction, because then you're trying to actually work out things like genetics and biology and genomes and so forth and so on. Um
0: Well, it is interesting. That that does seem to be it, isn't it? It, 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 In science fiction, and I'm sure when I stop to think about this, rather than just talking off the top of my head, I'll come up with an exception. But in science fiction, Mm -hmm. there does seem to be a tendency for the discussion of gender to be mechanical, or literally the the mechanics of changing biology or physiology rather than anything else.
1: I think it's difficult to do both things at once. Mm -hmm. I mean, the classic example, I suppose, still, after all these decades is the left hand of darkness, because mm-hmm. she's worked out the notion, she's worked out the biology, she's worked out the idea of chemist, she's worked out the idea of a, of a kind of estrus among these people, and so the hard science fiction foundation is laid, yep. um, and then on top of that, she has to deal, she she deals with a, you know, human point of view character who can't get past the idea of gender, Yeah. So so that's a writer who's sophisticated enough, to do the psychological, anthropological, and biological levels, building one on top of the other, which makes that a great novel. Yes, It's not too surprising that The Left Hand of
0: Darkness doesn't get written very often. <laughs> it's not easy to do that. No, but there are many interesting writers out there who are doing you know, stuff in, uh, in the same sort of space, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that most of what we were looking at was not... Um, was not dealing with imaginary alterations of of gender, of multiple genders, the kind of thing that Stan Robinson was yeah, talking about. Yeah. Uh, although, to be honest, in 2312, that was more an idea than in the action. In other words, the characters, the two main characters, eventually eventually are working out a romance between the two of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and well, I think one of the issues that comes up again and again, I know it's come up with... Um, some of the fiction of Greg Egan when he tries tries to write genderless stories. Yes. Um and and you can can you can you really do that? You can't. Can you
0: it, it, really... Well, it's a challenge, I mean, the, the, but then you know there's always arguments or discussions about what you can actually do and then waiting to see whether people can do them or not is is, is the challenge and whether everybody agrees that they did do them. I mean, not to sort of veer us off from the tip tree particularly because I guess this kind of sits in the same, in a tip tree related space. Right? So Mm-hmm. I was caught up in it, well, I, was, I involved myself in a discussion yesterday online about grimdark fantasy. And I don't know mm-hmm. whether you are familiar with the discussion that it started with a post that Joe Aber- Abercrombie met, uh, put up a couple of weeks ago. talking I did not about, see that. Talking about grimdark fantasy, talking about uh, uh, that it wasn't necessarily being uh, accurately or fairly judged. Uh, particularly in terms of issues to do with sexism and everything else. And there's a couple of very, very strong responses to this saying that, you know, sort of when when, when you're the shorthand for grim dark, which I guess is supposed to be, you know, gritty, realistic, all that kind of stuff, um, mm. when you're, you know, when that always involves violence to women, rape and all that kind of thing, well, then you're coming up with a pretty sort of bleak, Version of a world, and one where women can't ever get to fulfil a reasonable role, and it assumes the entirety of the world is like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting discussion. I mean, the discussion yesterday was really around the idea of, well, how would you write feminist grimdark f- fantasy? Can you write fa- feminist grimdark fantasy? What would it be, you know? Um, and I'm you know I'm sure you can, and I can think of people who could, but I'm not sure that I've read any off the top of my head. Don't have to really think about it. Grimdark fantasy is, is,
1: is this is this a term replacing what used to just be noir fantasy?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's got a, a strong sword and sorcery element to it. Hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, Abercrombie himself is a, is the big example of it, right? So, yeah, but I mean, there is the, 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 and the, I guess one of the issues that comes
1: up, and you and I probably are not the best people qualified to talk about, it, is you know what constitutes a Feminism within a context like that. I mean, would Laurel K. Hamilton qualify? Would the early Laurel K. Hamilton qualify, but not the later Laurel K. Hamilton? Um, I really don't read enough of it to get a sense of that.
0: Yeah, I'm in a similar space to you. What I will say is that, um, yeah, well, the piece by Abercrombie is called "The Value of Grit," so I guess it's about, Mm -hmm. about making, you know, fantasy sort of grittier and more realistic. Uh, And I I think the thing that people probably quibble with the most, though I may be wrong, is that Mm -hmm. the the necessity that realistic uh, means that it has to involve abuse, degradation of women.
1: Yeah, I don't agree with that being realistic at all necessarily, and I I, I don't think that it's – I don't think it's a necessary response on the part of a writer. Nor do I think that it's necessary. It's necessarily a useful response on the part of a writer to to create a kind of um, female version of these abusive male characters. No, 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 words, no I don't think that replacing one that. with another. Yeah. Uh, and well, there's there's, there's there's some of that. There's there's some of the. Um, I I'm getting out of my league here entirely. But but sometimes the. Uh, super competent woman the scarlett johansson black widow in the avengers or or lara croft and that sort of thing isn't really a way of answering that at all it's simply a way of reversing the polarities a little bit yeah Um, i had a. I I, I used to know better than i do now i haven't talked to her in four or five years a mystery writer here in chicago sarah Paretzky, who made her name writing hard-boiled yes uh, private eye stories about a female detective
0: yes i read them
1: yeah they're very good and she's very good in, in terms of dealing with this character But, uh, and I, I remember talking to her not long after I think just her second or third one was out this is a long time ago and she said that the expectation um, and she was a very active feminist and was very interested in, in, in the women in crime fiction There's uh-huh. an organization that she had to, that the expectation of her was to write a female Philip Marlowe she wanted to, the character supposed to be just as tough just as unconnected and her argument was Basically, women aren't like that. Wh- women would not do what Philip Marlowe did. <laughs> women can be as good a detective as Philip Marlowe, but they would. And so you end up with somebody who's very smart, vulnerable in certain ways, but who is not a female version of a male hero. And she was very careful that she did not want to do that. Yes. Um, and I think she. I think she's been successful in it. I mean, I think there are some some um, Sarah paretsky novels where well, yes. Vi warshovsky There may yes. be a little bit too much of Vi Warshavsky's backstory, but by and large. She has tried to create yeah.
0: a kind of oh, no, I mean, female it's detective
1: fiction that's not an echo. Of Amer- I'm wondering, you can't, couldn't you do the same thing in fantasy?
0: I'm sure you, you could. I mean, the first place I thought to go back and look, and it's been years since I read them, is to look at the Alex stories by Joanna Russ. Mm-hmm. Not because they're necessarily grim dark, but because they're certainly strong swords and sorcery stuff written by a woman and, and would sit somewhere at the beginning, the origins of this. What, I, what I'm going to do, though, is I want to short circuit our, our discussion because every now and again we blather about something we don't know anything about. That's true. As, and
1: we're doing that, aren't we?
0: And so I thought what I would do is I'll, I'll send you the the Abercrombie link, and we'll discuss it another week. Okay. Because that way we could actually have a, a, a common background. But I do, but it's something I'm intrigued to um, to look at. I mean, whenever I hear someone say that something is awry, and I, there may well be something awry here, I don't know. My my sort of thing is like okay well how would you investigate it how would you change it um, how do you ta- you know what what is the the, the non appallingly racist sexist version of grimdark fantasy because grit and and realism and everything else don't have to mean those things even though yes and, and you know if you were to reflect twenty first century life there would be a certain percentage of the element and I think possibly one of the other issues with it is that when you're if, if it's not a hundred percent of everything, and yet in the stories it'll be a hundred percent of everything. I think, and that's the problem. And it's it's it's, it's not merely a gender thing. The thing that
1: uh, the thing that disturbs me about some of these, and I'm reading a novel right now which uses the same mechanism. Virtually every uh, police procedural, CSI kind of TV series that I know of does this, and that is to use children uh, yeah. in exactly the same way. Yeah. Uh, the endangerment of children is not oh, new. It's no. not new at all. But it's such an easy thing to do. Uh, it such is. A, it's such an easy thing for a writer to pull out of the hat. Um, and after a while, it becomes disturbing. Um, I was talking about Dracula the other day, and it's amazing how much of this stuff is laid out as long ago as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you basically have a, a demonic male figure victimizing children, victimizing women who in turn victimize children, Yeah. and then... Um, a, a, a group of people which includes um, a couple of interesting women characters uh coming up against them. To some some extent this template is not new this is this this urban noir template uh goes back to the 19th century yes it does so there i mean there's there's a, there's a fair amount of that in dr jekyll and mr hyde yes um but this is the 21st so it
0: century. it is a problem anyway anyway there there's another That's issue a dead end. Okay, okay. okay yes okay let's let's move on
1: Okay, another, another issue that was brought up by a friend of ours, and we should decide whether we want to uh, say who it was, but uh, it was a blog post. It was a review of uh, Guy K's, Guy Gabriel Kay's River of Stars, yep. in which the reviewer—actually, it was a Goodreads post, I believe—in which the reviewer said, Well, once you look up what happened to the Song Dynasty, there's no suspense in the novel anymore.
0: <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Well, I, I guess I'd start by saying, just just to let you know that when I was reading the book, right, I actually, because I know, I remember nothing of whatever I learned in college about the Song D- Dynasty, right? So I don't pretend that I that I know the de- the details. And I did find myself at one point looking it up and, in fact, flicking to the back of the book, to the acknowledgements to find out who the equivalents to Ren Diane mm. and uh, Thingy were, so I could actually find out what the the actual history you know, the history was and Guy is very open about sending you to those sources oh sure 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 i mean i guess he might I, I i don't know if he would but he might want to be happy for you to wait till the end of the book to do it rather than doing it halfway through and mm. it did sort of it tells you um what's known of the real world fate of the mm. equivalents to these characters uh, however you know First of all, I, mean, I guess it's a separate issue to say that he does change the history of things in his equivalence to, to make for better fiction, to make it all work out more interestingly, whatever else. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of think, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, the point the point in the response to, that I believe Guy was talking about it, privately off list, and we should be caught, uh, is that, is this a limitation in genre fiction, that there are things you're not allowed to do? And one of them is to recap real events because we know what's going to happen. Spoilers. Right.
1: Well, that's, that, that's exactly the issue. And, and as he points out, if... Um, oh, okay, we're, we're talking about who actually contacted us. But uh, you take Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies, uh, and, and you're dealing with Henry VIII and, and, and Thomas Cromwell. And, well, okay, it's not... People may not remember that, but by and large, if you're reading historical fiction, you pretty much know what happened to the Tudors. Um, you know, if, if, if you're uh, seeing a movie like The Titanic, uh, you pretty much know what's going to happen to the boat. Yes. Although... Not everybody did apparently um but but so so that's never a criticism of any historical fiction any mainstream fiction um but it seems to be a problem when people are using history in um in the context of fantasy and i i can't imagine why somebody would think that you know the the history of an analogous dynasty in 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 an analogous country to the country in in guy k's novel would in any sense
0: be a spoiler Well, no, I don't think it is. Well, I mean, there there are any number of reasons why I don't think it's a spoiler. The first is the warp and heft of the book offers Mm. more than um, simply the retelling of historical fact. That's the first thing. It has more textures, Mm. more depth. The interaction of the characters is engaging. um, And... I guess the question you, you would have, you know, if you're being fair, given that it is a, a, a historical fantasy and not a, a historical or be a non-fiction work, is whether ultimately it will play out the way that the history of the Song Dynasty played out. And, you know, it does and it doesn't. Um, I, I think it's a very small-minded mm-hmm. criticism, actually.
1: Well, it's – but it but – it, it, And it, a
0: limited one. I guess his point is, is this a limitation of genre? And I don't believe it has to be. But then – Well, I don't think it's a limitation of genre. Uh, I, I think it's a question of how people read genre.
1: Sure. I, I think the question that, that, that comes up is uh, when you read, um, well, let's, let's take War and Peace for an example. Okay. Um, you know, is, is it a spoiler to say that, okay, you know, um, Napoleon wanted Austerlitz? Uh, that's something anybody can Google. And in, in, in today's world, everybody Googles anything they come across they don't know in a novel, anyway. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to Google it if you're reading your Kindle. You just highlight it, and bingo, there it is. Um, the sense that, Um, in reading a traditional novel, just as a novel, forgetting about genre, Mm. you want to know what what happens to these characters. You want to know what happens to the characters that have been created and shaped by this writer at the end of that. That's apart from the historical context. Yes. Um, Now, do people read fantasy in such a restrictive way that the entire history of the world has to be... Omitted? um, Exactly. I mean, it's... it's, I don't think uh, so. Does anybody, okay, I, I, does anybody, okay, at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, let's say, if you've never read it before, I don't know, I've not talked to anybody in a long time who's read it for the first time, but everybody I ever talked to, by the time you're halfway through the first volume, you know they're going to get rid of the damned ring. Some, There's some no point in having three <laughs> volumes unless they're going to get rid of the damned ring. You know, they're not going to get to Mount Doom and say, oh, let's go home, this is too hard. Um, so... so don't, in other don't, words, don't the world... There could be another trilogy
0: in it. Well, probably could,
1: yeah. So if, if Tolkien had been writing in 1982, somebody would have said, "Oh, we got a franchise here. You can't end this now."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, or, or you'd find out that, you know, that he'd, he'd misremembered and it wasn't really the ring that he threw in, you know. Exactly. Oh thank goodness, yes. <laughs> or, or somehow they managed. You know, it, it, it fell to you know on a ledge. You know, Mm -hmm. trapped on a ledge inside Mount Doom, and then they were able to sort of recover it. But no, uh, and, and, you know, do you care if if there's some metaphorical connection between Lord of the Rings and the First World War? No. No, not at all. Okay, here's one. Have you heard, though, science fiction fans complain because Alfred Bester was just revisiting the Count of Monte Cristo? I don't know if I've heard people complain about
1: that. I mean, I've heard people rather astonished to discover that. Uh, The people, the only people who I think would complain about it or uh, or Heinlein in Double Star rewriting The Prisoner of Zenda or uh, uh, Gregory Benford in Against Infinity rewriting Faulkner's The Bear. Um, The people who complain about it, I think, are the people who discover it after the fact and think, I've been cheated. Yeah, I've you know, I've I've been reading a mainstream novel all along and I didn't want to. Um, In fact, those are those are. Very traditional literary games. It's not. It's not anything that uh, that that that, that Besser or Heinlein or Benford or anybody else has invented, or yeah. or Robert Silverberg, who even will title
0: one of his uh, novellas "The Secret Sharer." Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that the question is: is science? Is fantasy in this instance being limited by a genre worldview?
1: Well, I th- I think the implication in that criticism is that following characters through a um, a set of imaginary adventures in a, in a realistic context isn't enough, that the entire world has to be part of the fictional suspense. You have to wonder what's going to happen to this world as well as you wonder what's happening to the characters. We don't ask that of any other kind of fiction. Do we really ask it of fantasy, though? I think some readers might. I mean, that's what the implication of this post was.
0: Yeah. Uh. I don't know that it would have occurred to me to ask, you know, ask that of fantasy. I mean, uh, what I would ask of fantasy is a level of inventiveness and quality of writing and being engaged by the story and the characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when... <sighs> yeah, no, it, it would never occur to me to consider that as being a factor. And I can't imagine that anyone sitting down to write, you know, fantasy would have in their mind that, oh, well, I can't just, rely you know, sort of rehash events. I mean, I guess you could turn around and say, is it a spoiler that Game of Thrones is the War of the Roses?
1: There was a... uh, Well, probably for some people it would be. Um, Sorry. There was a line on a situation comedy here last week. Um, that I saw quoted in the magazine. I wasn't watching and There's a show called Community, in which one of the characters, who is supposedly a college student in a community college, said, explaining why he wasn't interested in history, saying, said, "said if I want to find out what happened in Europe hundreds of years ago, I'd be watching Game of Thrones."
0: Yeah. No, no, you would not. It's, not at it's all. It's totally. But but the thing
1: that, and I think what this gets at also is something else that disturbs me about a kind of aesthetic discussion that goes on in panels and in reviews that has to do with world building and and sort of the evolution of the world and the fate of the world as a separate thing from novel writing yeah there are people who are obsessed with world building there are people who who build worlds and never get around to writing novels about them yes Um, and there are people who look at a novel like a guy k novel or a stephen donaldson novel or a steve erickson novel whatever and they look at the world building as being a completely separate kind of aesthetic construct from the story being told or the characters being written about yeah and i'm not sure that's wrong uh
0: but it's it's not the way i i tend to read novels no i don't think it's yeah it's very strange i mean it's not the way i tend to read novels either i mean i'm not sitting there judging yeah when, when i read um oh i was just about to start. i was gonna say when i read the drowning girl gary i didn't uh, look at how well it meshed to reality uh, on the other hand, I am the man who, when he read *The Drowning Girl*, did actually fire up Google Maps and find the houses on the streets. Ah, okay, <laughs> ah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, I just was getting the geography in my in my head straight, <laughs> and, I, and it actually was quite it it impacted on how I perceived the book, actually, Gary. I think a little bit because there's a lot of shifting perspective in that, and the lead, you know, the mm. the protagonist is has is not an unreliable narrative narrative say, but certainly is. Un- unreliable perceptions at times and so it was interesting to be able to go well okay well i, I don't know what even led me to do it to fl- just sort of go okay well I'll, I'll literally plop the little little guy down on the on the street on street view on g- google view and sort of mm. walk down the street and across the park where imp has just ri- just walked but you know i i other than a, a mild curiosity i didn't need to know about the song dynasty nor you know, would does anybody else who's looking to read the book read that book um mm. i i haven't sat there sort of you know, uh, looking at other books that I, that I've read in the last x number of times and ask that question. No, no. I, I and I, I I think it's an idiosyncratic thing. And I think maybe it's just a small kind of I don't want to say small-mindedness in the actual review. It's just a really odd throwaway thing to put into a review that um that the fact that it was his, historically accurate made the book less interesting. That's very strange. I mean, but but the thing that bothered me about it
1: was that uh, if you have the broad outline of what happened to a nationwide um, period of history that lasted really a couple of centuries.
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and a nation that isn't even the one represented in the novel. I mean, I'm cl- clearly Kitai is yeah. you know, like China, but if it were China, it would be called China. It's like China. It's, it's an analog of China. Yeah. Um, the The implication is that the characters aren't enough to carry you through the story. That, you know, you have to have... This is where I think a misreading of fantasy comes in where you learn to read things through fantasy. If these characters aren't going to change the outcome of history, then what's the point of reading about them? Yes. That's essentially the question being asked, uh, that, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the, the death star is going to blow up and the characters aren't going to stop it from happening. Well, that's not a good analogy because everybody wanted the death star to blow up. Um, you, you read a novel about the, the, uh, American revolution and you realize That the characters in the novel are not going to change the end of the American Revolution. (laughs) You read a novel about World War II or the Holocaust, and you realize that unless you're Philip K. Dick or Quentin Tarantino, you can't change the outcome. But
0: but then if you read a retelling of the Robin Hood legend, I mean sooner or later you're going to end up with Friar Tuck and Maid Marian. Well yeah, how's that any different? (laughs) I mean honestly, how's it any different at all? You know, yes I know how Rumpelstiltskin goes. Oops, that's what they're doing. Well I guess that's how that's going to play out. It's what you do with it. No, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous criticism.
1: Well, oh, yeah, it, it is. But the question I think that uh, that might be a concern is is of course it's not a it's not a valid criticism. It's, it's, it has nothing to no, do with no. the way we read novels. But but, but is, is it, it mm-hmm. is it a bad habit of reading that more than a few people have? Probably. Uh, and if that's the case, then are we? constraining and this is the original question we started with are we constraining fantasy um and possibly science fiction But let's keep it to fantasy for now in a way that we wouldn't constrain any other form of fiction in that we expect characters to change the world in fantasy and in other fiction we don't expect that
0: i don't think so because i don't think anyone takes it seriously really no the the people who who are writing it and everything else i don't think they're taking it seriously so i think that makes it you know, I think it's a moot point in that in, in that sort of context. Um, it, it, if there was a much stronger view than a few people writing the odd review, if the people who sat down to write the fiction were limited in that way, you know, well, like, obviously, I, you know, whilst I'm going to sit down and do this, I can't retell the history of the event, or I can't actually follow mm. the path of the, the, the myth or whatever else, uh, then maybe, but I don't think that's true. Um I guess it's something to be concerned about, that there's a certain kind of close-mindedness about it. Um, I would say that in the instance we're talking about, what you do get is you get a, confer- get a convergence of expectation, because no, the criticism would never be made about a historical novel, because it's innate to what a historical novel does, that it revisits right. historical events. When you're doing a blend of hist- history and fantasy, I guess there is a slightly different question with that, because there is the element of fantasy, what the, what the fantastic element is. And certainly... It's so a question we've discussed here before, people around have discussed is, in the cases of historical fantasy, how important is the fantastic element and right. what does it do? And is it something that's written as a historical fantasy really, in fact, a, a fantasy at all if it doesn't have overt magic or something like that in it? Yeah,
1: that becomes another issue as well. And that, uh, so, so I think you're right. I think very few writers uh, would sit down with any of those constraints in mind. I mean, I think there's a game being played. Mm. Uh, there are a number of games being played by writers, intellectual games, brilliant games, and de- about dealing with history in different ways. Yeah. Guy K's strategy is to deal with an analog of history, to to use historical periods reasonably close but change the names. Yes. Um, Tim Powers' strategy is to keep the historical record as is and fit little supernat- major supernatural events into the cracks in the historical narrative. Yes. The secret history. Yes. Uh, motif. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, there's the alternate history, uh, yes. the steampunk kind of the kind of thing. So, and I don't think any any of these people necessarily worry right. about that at all, um, and nor nor should they. No. But it it, it it suggests to me that maybe that there is some there's some level of reading fantasy. I'm I'm actually blaming the reader more than the writer here. Yeah. There's some level of reading fantasy that needs to have the freedom to be read as a novel, and not set up against standards of world-building, of of, does this look enough like Tolkien? Is there enough fantasy in it? Are there dragons in it? In other words, you have all these litmus tests as to whether something is a fantasy novel at all, yep. and by the time you've gotten to the litmus test, you've forgotten to read the novel.
0: <laughs> I think that's true. Oh ah, well. We'll see what happens. Well, it's, it's, uh, ironically,
1: science fiction doesn't quite have that problem because... Um, it is it, it it limits itself in very specific ways. It don't. Um, but um, but even then, when you have somebody like Frank Herbert writing Dune and and, and basing it on actual Middle Eastern campaigns, um, mm-hmm. there 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 were some people that saying, oh, he's just doing Lawrence of Arabia here. That's not any anything original. And for, those arguments never got anywhere about, uh, in, 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 as a criticism of Dune, as far as I know.
0: Uh, no, I, I don't think they did, I think. And, and, and they won't get, you know, they won't go anywhere in this case either. Um, no. Uh, look, there, there's always d- dangers of limitations on what artists are going to attempt, I guess. Um, yeah. We're not going to win a Hugo for this episode, Gary.
1: Um, The five or ten minutes there in the middle of it, we, we might be... Uh, we might have been okay.
0: Now the wheels fell off, Gary.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess so. You been reading any good books, Gary, lately? Because we need to we need to save this episode quickly.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's that's always a good way to do. It. I'm, I'm 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 not quite finished with um the new novel, not the first novel, but the first novel that a lot of people will know about from Paul Cornell. I guess he wrote a couple of science fiction novels a decade or he, so ago. He did. Um. And um. This is London Falling, which is a it's 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 another subgenre which is all over. It's been around for a century probably, but it's it's the it's partly a hidden London story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are supernatural things going on in London that uh, there's a whole other London. There's this is the Neverwhere London. This is the in London. This is the uh, Dan Simmons Drood London. Yep. Uh, ben Aronovich's Rivers of London London. Um, there's, I mean, there must be, there must be a book of the month club just for secret London
0: novels by <laughs> now. There should be. I don't think there are quite that many, you know, uh, secret oh. London novels around, Gary. There might be a little bit of, uh, poetic license in what you're suggesting, but yes, there have certainly been many of them.
1: Well, and, uh, if you wanted to add a handful of secret New York, secret Moscow, uh, yep. Katharina City. um. I don't think there are any secret Dubuque novels.
0: <laughs> secret however, to however, there might be. however you know, to, to each to each of our, our listeners who, who, who are out there at the moment, we would encourage you to create some secret Dubuque, Dubuque novels because, hey, look, wouldn't it be cool? Well, it, 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 it has something to do with the appeal. I mean,
1: this is also... Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much because I haven't written my review and I haven't finished the novel. Yeah. But it also touches upon the kind of noir gritty uh what
0: was the term again grim grim dark grim dark that's one word i assume I, looking at it on joe abercrombie's blog it is so i say yes it is there you go uh,
1: okay um so there's a bit of that in in, in 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 paul's novel there's a bit of um sports writing in it i guess is a way of putting it um so, 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 so and, and it it really gets uh, ambitious toward the end um, in terms of the degree of fantasy, but it's it's structured as a police procedural, which seems to me to be one of the things
0: that goes into the mix of what we now consider urban noir fiction. There are um, there are a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, obviously the most successful example in recent years would be the uh, Jim Butcher books. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which have been phenomenally uh, successful. So yes, but I've but I've not read Paul, you know, Paul's book. Paul, Paul of this parish, Paul, listener to this podcast. So yes, you know, but you're enjoying it.
1: I'm enjoying it. He's, he, I mean, he he seems to be having a lot of fun with it. It's not, um, and, and I can't explain this until I think about it. Uh, it's not overly ambitious for a novel which which is essentially introducing him to a wider audience i think at this point it's fair to say that paul is uh more widely known for for his comic books for wolverine for doctor who and for things than for novels although he did have that very interesting series of short stories about oh what was the character's name hamilton Uh, the 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 one of Our Bastards is Missing. And, and the, the, Copenh- the uh, Copenhagen
0: Variation. Yes. Copenhagen
1: Interpretation. There were three characters. That was a very interesting imaginary world. Yes. And it seemed to be his way of staking out his territory in the science fiction world. Yes. Uh, now he's now he's into the uh, hidden, hidden London supernatural
0: yeah.
1: world. But it's also a police procedural. It's also a number of things. It's a good example of the kind of thing that I think people are doing more and more freely these days, which is that. I will take my structure. And I'm not saying that Paul is doing this specifically, yep. but I can see writers saying, I will take my structure from the police procedural. I will take my characters from Celtic mythology. I will take my events from, um, native American legends. I mean, whatever. Yep. Uh, and all this stuff can fit together in in, 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 a way that you are only responsible for, for selling it. You're only responsible for getting away with it. I think Ian yep. e. Forster of all people. Yeah who didn't really write fantasy, once my favorite quotation from Ian Forrester, other than the one only connect from Howard End, was that the only responsibility of the novelist is to get away with it.
0: <laughs> Which I thought, that's that's never failed me. <laughs> nope, you're right. I mean, I, I guess then you, you would say, because I was reading some criticism of this, that the recent news that Sebastian Fawkes is to mm-hmm. write a new uh, Jeeves and Worcester novel, his only responsibility is to get away with it?
1: Um, it really is in a way. I yeah. mean, there are people who are – it's very difficult to do that. The chances of succeeding in something like that are remote, but you can't – but if he gets away with it, he's just setting a much higher bar. There was an American writer, a Chicago writer a few years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, yeah. who just who got the rights from the um, Rex Stout estate to write some new Nero Wolfe novels. Yeah, And he did. And by and large, all the elements of a Nero Wolf novel were there, and they just had no magic. Yes. It was, it was like reading a game-playing scenario with Nero Wolf and Archie as characters. Yes. Um, and I, and it's, it's very easy to do that sort of thing. Uh, if somebody wants to write um, and, 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 and sets a very high bar write a, a novel based on a part of another novel... It's possible to do that well. It's, mm-hmm. it's possible to recreate well-known characters. Uh, Peter Carey did it with um, his novel based on Great Expectations, Magwitch. Yeah. Um, Jean Reese did it with uh, her novel based on Wuthering Heights, um, the um, Wide Sargasso Sea. Yeah. So if you, it's it, it's a real, diffi- really difficult challenge for a writer to do that, but I think you can do it. But as somebody to write writing? another.
0: Hmm? Go ahead. No, right? you say someone write another one. Could somebody write another novel
1: with Gulliver Foyle in it, From the Star is My Destination?
0: Well, probably. I mean, and, and you get elements of this. I mean, there's a great example. I don't know if you're aware uh, that this is happening mm-hmm. right now, because Damien Broderick has written a follow-up to Born with, Robert Silverberg's Born with the Dead.
1: Interesting idea. And Damien's a very skilled novelist.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this is much like the uh, – I mean, I, I've not read it, so I've got no opinion of that book. Obviously, I'm familiar with Born with mm-hmm. the Dead, but I haven't read – Damien's follow-up novella Um, but I did read the very unsuccessful Beyond the Fall of Night which was the Mm -hmm. Clark Benford attempt at the same kind of a thing and showed all the hazards I think the pitfalls with something like the Jeeves Worcester book with with Forks is first of all um, the dependence on on voice and and the Mm -hmm. kind of writer that, that, that Woodhouse was makes it a very Difficult thing to succeed with. And I can't think of many examples uh, where uh, readers have really taken to it, even if they've sold moderately well for a while. I mean, they had Geraldine McCochran, who's a terrific writer, write a Uh new Peter Pan book, an officially sanctioned Peter Pan book. And yet it doesn't seem to have got much play in the world at large. Um, And when I look and think about, you know, if you were to get somebody to write I don't know a new Michael Valentine Smith film, uh, uh, novel. Yeah, uh, would the world need such a thing? I mean, you, you see wh- wh- you know, whispers of it in you know, tribute anthologies and things, where someone sort of writes in the world of, and st- suddenly somebody else is writing a, you know, a Caves of Seals torch sort of story or something. And, and they're well, never I mean, quite and, there. And, and, and you have, you know, there are ways of playing games with it, the way Cory
1: Doctorow did with his, his. his uh I, I, I rowboat, that kind of thing. Mm.
0: Um, well, no, he was people, playing thematically, though. He really wasn't just going back and using characters. That was quite different. No, he's he's, he's playing games. With, but I've heard,
1: uh, I, I, I've not read them, so I'm not making a judgment, uh, but that I've, I've heard from a number of people that uh, the more recent Brandon Sanderson Wheel of Times novels in, in many ways were superior to some of the earlier Robert Jordan novels. That to some extent he had worked with us, he had worked with Jordan. He had mastered the universe. He was he was he was not slavishly copying the characters. Now this is admittedly continuing a series rather than revisiting a a, a long dead series. But But, I don't think that I don't I don't think it's taboo. I don't think it's off limits for writers to do that sort of thing. Well, maybe not. The chances of succeeding if you're trying to do PG PG Woodhouse, if you're trying to write like James Thurber, if you're trying to. Right, oh. like Joanna Russ. You're probably not going to get away with it.
0: I was going to say the thing that that instance that you suggested uh, with the uh, Brandon Sanderson uh, instance, I would have to say the closest to that might be someone like Terry Bisson picking up and completing um, Canticle Prologue. Ca- yeah, yeah. In the sense that um, it was partially completed, there was lots of notes, mm-hmm. directions. And of course, in the case of Brandon Sanderson, apart from his own skills as a writer, uh, there's the fact that. Uh, Robert Jordan's wife who was his editor was there as well that yes. led through the whole process so you get a lot of consistency so I don't know it's, 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 it's interesting
1: well I mean to be honest some of this has to do with I, I, I'm i not sure that anybody who even the the most serious fans of Wheel of Time a, a series of which I read the first two volumes and then the New Spring when it came out years later so I don't know the series well Yeah, yeah. I don't think the people who talk about it talk about it in terms of the unique wonderful voice that it's written in uh, the, love the, the events, story, yeah. the characters, the, the the narrative arc there are all kinds of ap- very appealing things to it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not necessarily voice, and recreating a voice is something that's very difficult to do. Um, I'm the the, Terry, the, the 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 interesting thing to me about if you say, say somebody wanted to write a Heinlein, uh, oh, well, a lot of Heinlein didn't. Um, have terribly complex, until until you get later on, didn't have terribly complex characters or terribly complex plots. Um, the thing that struck me as odd about Beyond the Fall of Night, uh, and maybe one of the reasons it failed, is that there really wasn't much to work with in the first place. Yeah, There was a set of ideas, this is what Clark did very well, there was a set of ideas, one character who was kind of your universal, young, coming-of-age, learning-his-true-fate, uh, male uh, science-fiction protagonist, and... Outside of that, all you can do is expand the ideas. I mean, nobody really, I don't think,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, has really strong emotional memories to any Arthur C. Clarke character.
0: No, I don't think they would have. I don't have. I remember stories, not, but not characters. Yeah.
1: I mean, if I try to think, if I try to think of Bowman in, in, in 2001, I still think of
0: Kira DeLee. Yeah, well, yeah. Not the character, but. <sighs> Gary, you know what? Mm. We made it. We made it to the but hour. We all the way through. Oh my god! I will say, I also realize because, hey, I'm following Twitter at the same time I'm talking to you. Um, we're factually incorrect in this podcast and need to correct ourselves. Okay. The Hugo uh, nominations close tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow. It's, it's for me. You're living in tomorrow. Uh, they say tomorrow, so in 24 hours. So it's Saturday evening there, right? It's Saturday evening here in the so states. So cl- I think they close midnight Sunday where you are. Okay, so people do
1: have another twenty-four hours to get Hugo nominations in. So should we and hold back? Please this don't
0: podcast. listen to this podcast if you're if you're thinking about doing that. Should we hold back releasing this podcast, or should we just take the risk? Oh, I don't know. Let's take a chance. You <sighs> still have twenty-four hours to undo your votes too. <laughs> <laughs> On that rambling, shambling, disorganized note, with a, with a sort of a passing promise that some podcast soon, we'll do a little bit of planning, which we keep trying to do but well, never manage to we, do. We, okay. We need to a producer, honest, Gary.
1: We have, we have done planning. We have planned podcasts, and in various ways, our plans have fallen through because of various guests who had more complicated schedules than we had anticipated.
0: Yes, that's true. But may, maybe we'll, next week we'll plan. Honestly, or the week That's, after. Maybe the week after next. Because you know, the next week I'll be in Sydney and I've got, you know.
1: Probably not. You'll be enjoying Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. Say hi to
0: Bruce. Yeah. Bruce does have a connection
1: to our field, you know.
0: There was an Bruce anthology done by him, yeah.
1: And Walt, Paul McCauley
0: wrote a story called that.
1: But he actually performed with the Rock Bottom Remainders. and
0: Wow. I didn't know that. I
1: I believe that was at a at a BEA, or okay. what was then called an ABA.
0: Now, just everybody knows if they don't quickly as a footnote, rock bottom remainders with Stephen King's pickup band that would play at uh, Book Expo. Stephen King, Amy Tan,
1: uh, other I people. I don't know if Dave Barry was in it. Uh, Roy Blount, and they were performing at the BEA. And this is this is written up. You can look it up historically. There's an article in it in Locus, I think, by Ed Bryant. And after they had sort of blundered their way through a few songs, as they tended to do. Springsteen came out and joined them. (laughs) So there you go. I mean, now you have every reason to have him on the podcast, and I'll be disappointed if I don't talk to him next week at this time.
0: Well, until then, Gary, no pressure. (laughs) I will look forward to talking to you again. And for for everybody out there, yeah, we're sorry. Um, We'll try to do better next week.